cliffcentral.com. This is the Renegade Reports. I'm Jonathan. And Ramon is here. How are you, Doctor? I'm okay. I'm okay. How's Just okay. Uh, yeah, but I see you busy on your phone there. What's going on? I've got emails to do, right? <laughs> no one pays me to do this. Show takes a back seat. Did you celebrate uh, Winnie Mandela's 80th birthday? I did. I did. I did, it, did so by killing a, a young child. Oh, fantastic. I did, mm. I did that too as well. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the way you celebrate uh, Winnie Mandela's uh, birthday, isn't it? Oh, hold hold on, guest guest. Jeez, I guess just butts in here. I like guess he owns he just, the place. He just like we haven't even introduced him, and he <laughs> wants to comment on 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 the sacred the sacred uh, worshiping of, of Winnie. I was saying, you know, just because you're a doctor and it didn't go right, don't blame it on Winnie. <laughs> it's a fair point. Oh, and he's got jokes. Okay, so he's getting cut off for a second. Yeah, uh, you, you should actually uh, ask her for assistance next time. She's the expert at that. Uh, clearly, clearly. Um, all right. So, how's your week been? Anything uh, amazing in the news? Uh, Trump is going to win, and uh, yeah, Trump's going to win. Crooked Hillary is sick as all hell. Um, yeah. Crooked Hillary's dying. A lot of people were fired yesterday. Uh, Jiba and I don't know who. Well, else. they're not going to get. You know, they're going to use taxpayer money somehow to uh, to appeal. So yeah, things are as uh, empty and void as always. So there is no purpose mind, to life. Least, absolutely. Okay, so that's why we've brought uh, a Zionist onto the show. Um, so this is to piss you off if you uh, read the Daily Vox. Um, essentially, this is the Renegade Report antidote to the Daily Vox. No one reads the Daily Vox. What is it? Um, yeah, just, you know, your usual kind of propaganda, I guess, uh, propping up certain views. Uh, so... I suppose we could be called propaganda. You are uh, you are on. Uh, our guest is Benji Shulman. Benji, tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, how's it, guys? Uh, so, yeah, my name is Benji, and I work for the South African Zionist Federation. Okay. And in the, so you're one in of the, the juice. Yes. The evil, Those ones. The evil juice. <laughs> the evil juice. Okay. Um, I work in the community relations department mm-hmm. there, and, uh, yeah, I like talking about Israel, which, you know, is always a fun task. Uh, apartheid Israel. Is that the same the one? Democratic State Israel. Right. Okay. Now, all I hear is about apartheid Israel. And I thought apartheid is like so 80s. Can't I change the name of it? Also, apartheid was here uh, and we should keep it here. <laughs> well, no. We should have left it behind like yes. we did. <laughs> but, but historically. Historically. historically yeah, let's, yeah. let's not uh, abuse people's history uh, for other, well, other purposes. It's appropriation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Cultural disgusting, appropriation. disgusting cultural appropriation. How dare you, Israel? Okay, so so before yeah. we get full on into Israel, because because at this point, you know, there are people who are who are like screaming into their phones. Um, uh, Benji, you've been involved in student activism, and uh, uh, I don't know what you would call it, student leadership, I suppose. So yeah, I mean, this was a while ago, before I was older and a bit grayer. But uh, I once upon a time did spend some time on campus as part of the sort of independent student movement, particularly at Wits. That's where I did uh, my my time. Uh, it was a long time. Before uh, fees fell. Before Tough fees times. fell, yeah. I had to make the fees fall with pay, by paying it. Um, and yeah, we, we, we were part of a, a few different iterations of the independent student movement. Basically, students who would say, you know, we have enough of uh, party politics on campus, doesn't really get much done. What can we do to actually make a real difference on student issues and on things that are not like, uh, that are not partisan, like the, everything 
things that every student can can benefit from. Like the quality of food at the Matrix. Um, no, there's there's certain fights you don't start with. That 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 air quotes food is awful. I don't know if you ever had it. There was an excellent Hindu place though. It was very cheap, uh, and they could get excellent vegetarian food. I know that's not really your guys' vibe, but uh, no, we kill the bull. Exactly, but no, it was excellent. Karanich is excellent if you want good curry. It fits the only place to go. <laughs> um, no, we, we you know we did, but funny enough, food is, it was something that we focused on. So no one was talking about the fact that. We would have 200, 300, 400 kids who were like what they call food insecure on campus, just weren't eating. And mm. so as a student movement, we'd just go out there and collect food from corporates, from each other, from wherever we could find, and just um, you know collect those food and then give it to, to the administration to give out to, to students. It was like students doing stuff for other students as opposed to climbing their way up the political ladder. That was really the idea. Yeah, so – you were part of that sort of movement. I think we know about those students. They did come to the fore for a short while before we were arguing about whether the people who clean the floors at Vits were insourced or not. Um, Although, funny enough, and, and you know, you guys can probably learn something from this. You know, mm. the left have been talking about. I like the in, word probably. In, it's important. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to be like too judgmental. Um, you know, the, the, the left have been talking about insourcing and free education for 15 years. And everyone, when I was at university, thought this was a joke. And now it's not a joke because everyone thinks that they're being serious. So, you know, there's, there's a value to talking about things, even though we're not mm. really sure if they're going to. Well, you know. I, well, I think there's a conundrum here whereby you have these political parties on, on campus and they talk about ideology mm-hmm. and then you have independents like you who actually talk about what could benefit the students on this actual campus. Sure. I think that's the difference, right? You want to feed the people who can't be fed. You we want, want to help studying. We want to do, you want to make sure the, the res is adequate, um, <laughs> transport. There are some transport issues. Let's solve, let's solve them. So it's like a problem solving, uh, mechanism in a way. Sorry, you're... our attitude was that if a if a student has a blocked toilet address, they don't care if it, they don't want a liberal or a socialist; they want a plumber, right? So <laughs> let's get them the plumber. Yeah, I, I, I might argue that most people feel the same about their general government. <laughs> um, <laughs> we want a plumber as a government. Well, we want a plumber for the government. Yeah, yeah well, um, he's come to fix the pups. Um, okay, so so yes, we're going straight there on a Friday. Uh, all right, so you did, you were involved in all this stuff. In terms of the political parties on, on campus, I've always had the feeling, I was also involved in student representation at a point, uh, always got the feeling that uh, political parties probably didn't belong on campus. I know mm-hmm. that we might argue with freedom of association and all that stuff, uh, but it muddied the waters a, a lot because it did exactly what you're saying, which is not deal with the main issues that face students and very often was a way for people to build their own empires so that after university, uh, Floyd Shavambu as an example. Who, by the way, was the most famous ANC Youth League member to not win an election at Vits. The year that he came in, uh, he so decimated the party that they lost all 15 seats. It's well, the only time that's ever happened on campus. Well, he's continued in, 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 the, in that vein because he's still never won an election. Um, so, but, but he it, seems to have learned a little bit seems from like a bit of, It seems like a bit of a stepping stone. Um, it, is, is that is, fair? Absolutely. No, I mean, particularly, uh, I would say less so with the DA because they have their own sort of talent pipelines or whatever. Listen but, to him shilling. <laughs> wow. By the way, I was the DA opposition when I was independent student. I was independent of every one right um but but the uh, with the pya the progressive youth alliance which is like the anc and sasco mm. and the young communist league and sometimes the muslim students association um basically if you were the head of the src that was your next step into 
provincial government or local representation. So mm. definitely, I think people use it as a, a way to climb up the, the the pole, and it's not necessarily going to attract always the right kind of people. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. I mean, if you look at the people that represent us in parliament, we you can see why. Uh, so, what happened to this uh, independent movement? So, I mean, I think it's an interesting question because it was very, very successful when when we first started it. We took the the ANC had literally a monopoly on the or the PYA had a monopoly on the campus for five years. Uh, I mean, by monopoly, okay, they had one or two seats were independent sometimes, mm. uh, and within one year, we took them down by forty five percent. We missed taking the entire SRC by one vote by one seat. So that was quite a frustrating, actually, uh, and and it and it kind of carried on for a while. But I think that, and it's what worries me uh, for for our sort of younger folk. I can say that because I'm getting a bit older. But uh, is that this, these identitarians have really taken over the the thing on campus, the that discourse, if you like, and and I think it's a big worry because people are more attracted to being very excited about issues of gender or race or whatever, as opposed to tackling the the nuts and bolts issues on campus. Yeah, so it's tribalism essentially in in another name. But um, you know, most people don't know this or they don't realize the extent of this. And SRC is not voted for by the majority of students. No. So uh, I remember round about when when we were sort of voting for SRCs, you'd have uh, roughly fifteen percent, twenty percent at at most. That's a good turnout. Twenty percent mm-hmm. of the entire student base at a university like Wits, that's twenty uh, percent of thirty thousand people. Yes. So it's a small number um, voting. So now we come to something like fees must fall, and we've got this very loud SRC, and they're good at taking these sort of um, 1976-esque uh, pictures, uh, leading marches with uh, cool bandanas and, and other such things. Um, but my, one of my concerns is that they may have run away with an issue that might not be as important to the students as other things. So, I mean, I think what, what's, what's interesting here, and my take on this, is that for a long time we had these identitarian-type movements on campus, right? At uh, on UCT, the famous thing was Roads Must Fall, and uh, I think Roads So White was uh, big, and at one point it was Transform Bits. And they were a small group of ideologues, right, who basically would get into rooms on, on, on Friday afternoons like this and, and have arguments amongst themselves about, you know, the great problems facing mankind. And that's pretty much where it stayed. I think the problem is that the university system has become the place where everyone goes to solve the issues because, uh, you know, there's, there's no proper primary education for a lot of our kids. There's no proper other tertiary options. And, and so the university has become the place where students go to, to get a better life. And, and, the, and because the, the fees have r- risen so much, those, those uh, a lot of people are being sort of kept out the market, so to speak. And that's meant that suddenly the identitarians have all these foot soldiers who are angry and frustrated because they're at the university and they just can't pay. And it's given basically mismanagement by the government and not proper planning on on the part of what do we want the higher education sector to look like has meant that they've suddenly got angry people who they can drive into their discourse. And I think that for me is what Fees Must Fall is. is the, The typical PYA thing of, you know, someone once explained it to me, uh, if you're a PYA member on campus, politics is simple. At the beginning of the year, you protest because of fees. The middle of the year, you protest because people are failing. And at the end of the year, you protest because people are being thrown out. And that was always their agenda. But now they've got like a whole language. And I think that's what's dangerous. So what happened to the independent student movements that you, help, uh, you helped create? So the truth is, I think, you know, a lot of our constituents 
were were sort of the sick, lame, and lazy of campus, right? The people who just wanted to study, who were who wanted to party, who who were sort of moderately interested in politics, and it was a bit of a loose coalition. It was it was non-racial, um, and 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 when something as aggressive as fees must fall comes apart, it, it damages uh, a lot of sort of moderate, normal, rational voices on campus. And uh, so, in this last election, they didn't do too well. Uh, that is to say, they didn't get any seats. Uh, it's, they still exist, and they're still doing what they're doing. But I think it's going to, as I say, take a bit of time to take back the discourse once people realize that you know jumping up and down on this issue and, and targeting the wrong people hasn't really solved the problem. Okay, so it's been completely hijacked by not the movement, but the SRC has been completely uh, politicized once again. Yes, I think it has. Although, funny enough, I also think that the 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 PYA got a bit of a fright when this happened. You know, they they were. They weren't trying to start Fusmus Fall when they started. They were literally doing their once a year, through, twice a year protest. I was actually in Parliament the day when when the the guys from UCT stormed it. I happened to be going there for a meeting, and I got stuck between the protesters and the cops, which is not so much fun. Um, but I think they changed it because at UCT there is no PYA. Uh, it's, right. it's it's kind of been decimated, and so the the political thing is the the liberals, the, the Dasso, and then the, the the sort of identitarian regressives. And they were the ones who went after Parliament along with the Liberals, and I think that kind of gave the ANC a fright, and that's why we ended up with people outside Lutuli House and in and in uh, in Pretoria. And so I think that there's also been pushback from inside the ANC to say, "Hey guys, we, we didn't put you, we didn't put give you lots of T-shirts for your campaign for you to doing this." So I think, you know, I think we're gonna have problems, but I also think that there's a settling down inside the ANC at least that that this is not really where we want to go. Right. Oh, well, let's see. I mean, fees haven't been increased yet. Uh, I think they will have. They will have to be. This year, yes. mm. and if they are, the universities will be burnt down. Uh, you know, because there were threats to do that. Well, they are, I mean, and if there's no increase, the universities will retrench and shut down. So, what do you guys want? Do you want a university or don't you? Um, well, the latter, because they like socialism, and uh, you know they'll do socialism properly, as we we're always told by socialists who haven't yet actually tried socialism. I also think that you know we we kind of got a good. Get a bit excited for the Vits and UCT when this happens. The truth is, is that if you're a kid at UKZN or whatever, people have been burning stuff for years, right? And this has just been exported to you know other parts of the country, and and it's more uh, prominent. Yeah, and, and people take more notice because you know it's my alumni or I, I went there. Or I remember that classroom that used to not be you know burnt down. <laughs> All right. All should, right. Should well, we move on? We're exhausted. That's a, you know, universities are, are fucked, basically. So don't go there. Um, beca- okay. Become we, a plumber. We did tell you this in our first show. Yeah. So you become can, a plumber. You listen much, to Mark Cardo. Uh, he'll, he'll tell you. He'll tell you exactly. Indeed. Right. So Zionism. Right. The, the word that's, you know, sends shivers down many people's spines in this country, including people in politics. Uh, what does it mean to what, be a Zionist what, or, or, what or, a Zionist? The, or the ideology itself? So, you know, Zionism kind of gets a bit of a bad rap. It kind of gets put in all sorts of categories that it perhaps shouldn't be. But basically, it's the belief that Jewish people have the right to their own country in their sort of traditional homeland. That's really the definition. Okay. That's really that's as simple it. as it is. Jews have a right to live in their, in, in their own country. Yes. All right. And it's not as radical as you might think. It sounds very xenophobic. I'm sorry. So the, the, the thing about xenophobia, the thing about Zionism is that it, it was always had a democratic spirit. Right, in that, uh, so Israel is one of those places in the Middle East where the population is like 20% Arab, and and they're quite happy. They have rights. They can vote, even though you know 
Ramon, that's not a big thing for you. Some people take it seriously. Um, and the freedom of the press, they have members in parliaments, all these sorts of things. It doesn't have to be xenophobic. It's a, if it's kept open and kept democratic, uh, then that's what Zionism is. Zionism is the force of democracy in the Middle East. Right. No, I was, I was actually being rather facetious, facetious. But, but I can't have that kind of um, stuff on my record. That's not going to fly and, back at the office. Like the fact that, you know, a certain people want a homeland. If it was anyone else, people would say, but people do say that's xenophobic. I don't know why. It makes sense to me. So, I mean, it's, it's a movement that started in the, in the early, no, in the later 19th century. Late 1800s. Late 1800s. Yeah. And the reason why it happened was because the, throughout Jewish history, there's been these things called pogroms, right? Mm-hmm. Where, especially in Russia and in the East, in Eastern Europe, where you had a Jewish community and people sort of tolerated them. And then overnight, other people, well, not other people, other people in the community just came and actually decimated, killed Jews, bashed babies against walls, uh, stole everything the Jews had, right? So I had family members who were, were killed in pogroms, uh, before sort of what we traditionally think of as the big sort of tragedy of, Jews, which is the Holocaust, and good people, literally, is that it would be used as a as a political tool to keep people out of power, and uh, and and as by the local czar or whatever, as a as a means to to also keep the peasants in line, because you know the Jews were the middlemen, so they were an easy target, and and this was and this is not a new thing; it's not just European. Uh, it, it happened as well, although not to the same extent in in. Uh, in sort of Islamic countries as well, and pretty much since the last time that the Jews had a state, which was about two thousand years ago, this has been a consistent issue amongst Jews. This: how do we keep ourselves safe under under foreign power as a, as a small minority? All right. So a lot of the debate. I just want to sort of say something about Zionism, which is uh, it is a lot made about a, a state for Jews, you know, mm-hmm. a homeland, so to speak. Um, so a few things on that. One is: is would you Say it's equivalent to, for example, many European countries saying that their religion, they are Christian in their religion, or Middle Eastern countries saying their, their religion is, is Islam. Um, in the European examples, you're still free to practice other things, but this is their primary sort of religious belief and heading. Uh, or is it a bit more ingrained in that? I would, I would say it's not quite the right, um, not quite the right way of looking at it. The first thing you need to understand um, is that is that Judaism is 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 also a religion, but it's also like a people, right? So I mean, Jonathan, I'm not sure exactly about your beliefs, but you seem a God skeptical type to me, and and so you know that is really what people mean when they say a, a Jewish state. They don't mean some sort of theocracy. It's kind of in the culture. People speak Hebrew. We have a Jewish army, uh, you know, and and that's that's really what it means. So there's not, for example, so people very famous know that Jews don't eat pig, right? Mm. Now, the question is, can you eat pig in Israel? The answer is. Almost certainly, uh, all over the place. And Jews do it and, and Arabs do it and pig is a big part of the diet in Israel. If, if it was a proper theocracy, that wouldn't be the case. Right. Yeah. So that's the first point. The second point is that, uh, is that yes, there are all sorts of states all around the, the world, including in Europe, uh, which have a, a basis in some sort of religion and there's a lot of them and people seem to get quite upset about the idea that there should be one Jewish one when, for example, we have the Islamic Republic of Iran, right? Which is, if, like doing the most retrograde kind of version of Islam that you can find, and, and no one like gets really upset about that, you know. It's, and I think that's a problem. Right, yeah. right. So, 
well, going back to the, to the origins of, of Zionism, so the nation, the, the national homeland, so to speak, was chosen because Jews were being persecuted in most areas of the world, right? And there was a big debate at the time between the Jews and the Zionists, in fact. So I remember the Zionists, I, I read a, a book a, a few years back, so I'm a bit, but there was a, a thing where you are a British Jew, and Zionists say, no, 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 you're a Jew living in Britain, mm-hmm. because these people, or the, the political class, can just turn around one day and Expel you overnight, which has happened so many times to us. So, so Zionism comes about, you know, th- there was these nationalist ideas in Europe, but it, it primarily comes about in a place called France, which is, of course, famous for all sorts of minority rights issues. I'm uh, even at the moment, I can tell. Um, and because he keeps telling people, <laughs> it's like an incessant thing on record, like a repeat. It's like I'm a vegan as well. Do you know that? <laughs> and and you do CrossFit only on weekends. Sorry, sorry, Benji. Okay, yeah, here's your guys, man. Um, <laughs> so, so basically, in France, there's this issue where, where Jews. It was pretty like much a good place for Jews to live, right? It was a secular state. It was, and you French, what's it? The whole libertar fraternity, whatever you know Egalité, that phrase. That's yeah. right, equality. So everyone kind of like bought into this and was very nice until one day they have a guy um, called Alfred Dreyfus, and it's a very famous incident in France. If you ask French people, they're not going to tell you the Zionist story. They're going to tell you about how France was stuffed up by the Dreyfus trial, right? And he was basically brought up on trumped-up charges of spying for Germany. And he, and he was like the epitome of what it meant to be a secular, assimilated Jew in France. He had no interest in, in, in religion. He had no interest in nationality. He considered himself French. But when he went on trial, there were suddenly mobs marching through the streets of France going death to the Jews. And there was a guy there covering the, covering the court case called a guy called Theodore Herzl. He was a reporter from Vienna. And he's like, hang on a minute. If this is going to happen in France, we're screwed. And we have to come up with our own way of doing this. And he creates this, this Zionist movement of, of what was interesting about Zionists is that they actually had people from across the board, whereas all the other kinds of Jews didn't. So they had like religious Jews and secular Jews and kind of in the middle Jews, even some Christians who, who really felt like the, the, the solution here is, is our own homeland. And so that's where the, the Zionists get started. Okay, so back to my second thought on what I was saying earlier, which is a lot of people go, okay, so even if we buy into the concept of a Jewish homeland, and yes, okay, it needs to exist, or there's a there's a sense of why it needs to exist, why does it need to be where it is? Why do we need this strip of land uh, just bordering the Mediterranean Ocean uh, and, you know, with uh, right next to the lovely people of Egypt and Syria? Um, the Jordanians are actually quite pleasant. Um but but so why there? So I mean, it's interesting. Um, I don't know if you saw uh, Benjamin Netanyahu recently visited Uganda, and the Ugandan president was you know talking in a speech, and he's like, you know, at one point there was this, this sense where the British said, you know, the Zionists can go live in Uganda. So he was making a joke about this, and he's like, I'm really glad that you guys wouldn't have come here because you would have been colonizers, right? Because you would have come to a place that isn't your own. The truth is that Jews have been living in what we call now Israel. For 3,000 years, one of the most contested spaces in the whole of this, like if you, if you watch the news, a place called Hebron, right? It's like synonymous with like angry Jews and angry Palestinians and no one is ever happy, right? There was a continuous presence in the town of Hebron of Jews for 3,000 years, even after they got thrown out. And that only stopped in 1929 when they were massacred in a, a sort of Arab riot. And so the idea that Jews should go anywhere else was quite frankly ridiculous. So they and so they said, all right, we're going to go back to our homeland, and and really the the Jews are the indigenous people of Israel, and and that's where their that's where their books were written, that's where they prayed to for two thousand years, and and it's not like 
It's not like they, they threw a dart at a globe and said, oh, that's a nice patch of desert. Let's go, you know, so that, that, there really was a, a proper emotional attachment to the land. But even, even at the time, so, so they, they, they found the land that they wanted, which, which I believe it was called Palestine at the time, so, owned by the yeah. British. So the reason so it's called Palestine. Yeah, just, and, so anyway. and also, can you just yeah. clarify, because some people are going to go, but the Palestinians have been there for 3,000 years, yeah. not maybe because they necessarily know that they have, but that's what they've been told. So can we just get into yeah, you want to get a little into bit serious stuff? What is a Palestinian? Where does the word Palestinian come from? It's not an Arab word. So, right. you know. Okay. So, so the word Palestine comes from, it's, uh, from the Romans, actually. And what happened was, was basically at a certain point in history, the Romans were being not so nice to the Jews and the Jews kind of threw them the middle finger and there was a bit of a war. And, and so the Romans threw them out. And, and the Romans were like really annoyed because it was quite a big war and they had to spend a lot of money to kind of silence the Jews. And so at the, at the time, the place was called Judea. That was the name of the place. And so they renamed it. And they, to annoy the Jews, they renamed it after the Philistines who were their historical enemies. Uh, the Philistines, by the way, were not native to that area. They came from, Somewhere else in Europe, they were sort of called sea peoples that came from Egypt, and then they left. Uh, and, and they no longer exist. They no longer exist. I've never, I've never yet in all my sort of times found a Philistine. I found many Philistines <laughs> in my life. Not on this as, show. As, as one of my friends would say, Mongoloid Philistines. Wow. Okay. That's racist. That's racist. Yeah, yeah. well. Yeah, you guys are. Clearly living up to the thing. But anyway, so, so that's why, uh, the, the Romans, the, the Romans kicked them out. They called it Palestine. It pretty much was called that ever since as part of different empires. It was never like its own so place. It was just like one big historical trolling effort. <laughs> Precisely. Basically. It was like calling it Khateng or Transvaal. <laughs> that was basically what the Romans did, right? Uh, and, and it stuck. And in fact, it was the Zionists who really kind of resurrected the name because they said, well, we have to go back. And they're like, well, where are you going to go back to? Because at that time, it was all run by the Turks. They're like, well, we're going to go back to Palestine. No one had really called it that for a very long time. And so when we talk about Palestinians, mm-hmm. we're talking about people who did live in that area um, under the Turkish rule in from the sort of from the period of the 1800s and whatever. But the, they were never – you know, they were never a, a sort of national group in the way that we would think of Greeks right. or, or because or it, it was the Ottoman Empire, in fact. So they exactly. were Ottomans. You, if they lived under the Ottoman, Ottoman Empire, Empire, but they weren't there for for generations at a time. But the fact is, is that area of the world moved, right? You had the the Crusaders would come in and kill some people, and then you would have the Arabs would come in and kill some people, and then you would have the British that would come in and kill a lot of people. So the fact is, is that was an a, an area that that had a a lot of movement of, of people, and there's no. There's no good evidence to suggest, you know, that the, the as the like Palestinians like to claim that they were like time immemorial to the Philistines. And if you actually go to well, the West Bank and, and these, you'll actually see this kind of thing. Like, you know, we are the direct descendants of the Philistines. We were there first. Kind of, it's it's garbage. But there's a lot more evidence to suggest that Jews lived there before then, right? Yeah, the, the Jews, as I said. But there's are, there, there are ruins and stuff like that with um, with, with Jewish. Well, yeah, know, absolutely. I mean, you can. I don't know. What what Mark Twain used to say is, when you walk one kilometer in Israel, you walk a thousand years. Uh, right. And that's really, you know, it, it, it has really been uh, a, a, the Jewish homeland at a, at a number of different conceptual and state-based levels and, and, and claims, if you like. Okay. No, I mean, interesting. Um, I mean, I knew that, but a lot of people, <laughs> lot of people who listened didn't, I assume. So, okay. So, it was, it was created in 1948 by um, the United Nations, I believe. So, what happens is that basically the British take control of the area after World War One from the from the from the Turks from the Ottomans, okay, and immediately what they do is they like slice it up, right? right? Uh, so they give the Syrians to the French, they give the Jordanians something because they need a little protectorate over there, uh, and they literally install leaders into these different places, and 
and bef- but before World War One, the, the Jews kind of managed to like get a concession out of the British government. They kind of like managed to squeeze something out, which said, "Look, we'll back a Jewish homeland," and and that's called the Balfour Declaration. Right. Okay? And and so now that that this has happened, the Jews start campaigning, saying, "All right, well, you promised, guys, you promised, uh, and we fought in the war and whatever." But the real thing that pushes it. You know, up till then there had been from the 1800s people settling and people building kibbutzim and 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 starting universities and all these sorts of things, and and but what really then pushes it over the edge is the Holocaust, because the you've got these people who who basically have nowhere else to go. You know that there's 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 stats that say that like half the people who survived certain of the concentration camps were killed after, like the survivors, half of them were killed after they left the concentration camps because Europe was still such a horribly anti-Semitic place and they yeah. just killed six million people and the British didn't know what to do with the refugees they were putting them in more camps right, in places like Cyprus and all these sorts of things and so, because, so, so sorry, just going on yeah. the Holocaust people forget that the Jews were expelled mm-hmm. from before they were, before the Nazis took over the, the Polish expelled all the Jews, mm-hmm. I believe um, Hungary expelled all the Jews as well. The Ameri- Spain, the Ameri- Portugal. The Americans stopped Jewish immigration in mm. 1924, I believe, so my, as well. My grandmother got on the last boat out of Germany before South Africa closed the stores. Right. There was nowhere else for Jews to go. Exactly. And the, the world turned their back and and refused to even bomb like things like railways. There's, an, there's, a, there's a nice, well, nice, it's not a, in, in a sense of the example, mm-hmm. uh, that ship that uh, went sort of around the world – I forget the name. St. 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 It ended up in St. Louis. That famous picture of that girl looking out of the yeah the portal. Out of, out of the portal. Um, went all around the world and kept getting rejected until mm-hmm. eventually. But there, there are, there are. Um, I, I, unfortunately, I don't have the specific reference. But examples of uh, this happening: ships leaving Germany and then actually ending up coming back to Germany. And those, those, uh, they were those people by, taking being put they, on. They were rejected by, trains the, to by concentration the, camps by the Americans as well. Yeah, that, a, lot of, a lot of ships arrived in America and, and the, they, was, they were sent back. The, yeah. the girl in that, in, in, the girl in that portal ended up dying. Right in a, in, a, in a camp. So yeah. so, there, so this is the situation at the end of World War Two. The Jews are now saying, "Guys, you promised." And there's actually now a serious uh, a serious issue that we have to sort out here. Is that we have all these refugees and they can't go back, and no one wants them. So and the and the Brits were not keen because they're like, first of all, the State Department in Britain. There's this huge myth that somehow you know Israel was created by the big powers. The big powers were really opposed to this happening because it threatened all sorts of like oil things and and large Arab populations who are also now wanting their own countries. So, so the Jews start demanding, and eventually, for a variety of reasons, it's a very long thing. But the 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 Brits say, "Look, we can't take this anymore. We're sick of everyone fighting. We're sick of, uh, you know, the, the Palestinians blowing up stuff and all these sorts of things." So, so they put it over to the United Nations, and the United Nations say, "All right, look, we can't really fix this. So we're going to take what little land there is, and it is very little. I yeah. mean, I drove further to get to the studio today than the whole like sort of short breadth of Israel that there is." And, and we're going to divide it up. So the people that are, are living there that are Arab, they'll have like their own little country. And the Jews, you know, according to pretty much according to demographics, they'll have their own little country. If you look at the original maps, it looks like a bunch of sausages sort of wounded together. And the Jews said, all right, fine, we'll take it because we really need it. And, and the Arabs said, no, we want the whole thing and the Jews do not belong here. And we're going to, if you do this, we're going to start a war. And that's exactly what they did. So the, first of all, the local Arab inhabitants, the, the Palestinians, they've started fighting. And then something like, I can't remember five or six or seven Arab armies all attacked at once to to try and crush it, crush this this thing. After the United Nations voted as a total group, um, and from every country, there was a country in every continent that voted for this, including Africa and South America, to say that the Jews should have the state. The Arabs said no, and they tried to crush it, and they and Israel survived. 
And pretty much ever since then, there's been this thing about, okay, that most of the Arab world and, in fact, the broader Muslim world doesn't – rejects the existence of this country even though it's been clearly there for like 60-odd years. Yeah. Um, what about that uh, map? You know, there's a lot of South African – we'll talk about South African propaganda and, and reality uh, a little bit later. But uh, what about that map that we see on billboards, you know, where they, they have Israel um, – which, which are, Palestine, uh, the shrinking Palestine map. The shrinking map. Palestine map. So Israel on, uh, on the left and then to the right. And then Israel's like tiny on the left. And then it's like that was back then. And then it slowly goes to like now. And then Israel's huge and Palestine's tiny. Um, and just something else to say about Israel, which you said how small it is um, in breadth. Uh, it's not that big in length either. Uh, Size but, of the Kruger Park. That's the one we like to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's the other thing to say about it is that it's, it's, it's in 1948 it was a desert. It was really not a very pleasant place to live. Uh, some people might argue it's still not a pleasant place to live. <laughs> Certainly, um, if you go to the desert areas, that's the case. Uh, but there's been a lot of development in technology. It's that you know necessity drives innovation um, concept. A lot of stuff about how to farm in in desert regions and things like that has come out of Israel. But um, yeah, what's what about that map? Okay, so first of all, just a, a sort of blatant piece of self-promotion. I, I did my master's in geography. And there's a great book that ev- if anyone wants to read, they should read. It's called How to Lie with Maps. It's a whole book on the subject. And it's about how do you use cartography for propaganda purposes. And you can get it at a university library if it hasn't been burnt down. And the, the, point, <laughs> a, the, point, about, uh, the point about the maps that you see is that it's exactly what they've gone and done, right? So they, they'll declare this whole area Palestine and they make it look as if those were actually owned by people. That people were actually there. That, and, and the map, like, you know, sort of shows this progression of like change in the landmass as if that was some sort of creeping, you know, assault on people's rights. But what they don't tell you is that in every single instance where there was a change in the ownership of land in the area, it was because the Arabs had started another fight and then lost again. And then they didn't learn their lesson and they started another fight and they would lose again. So the fact is, is that 13% of Israel was not declared. It was actually bought. The, the way that the Jews got there for the first 40 years is they would go to the local Arab farmers and say, guys, we would like to farm here, please. And they're like, well, buy the land, which was normally very horrible. And so they would buy land with lots and lots of money and and then try and, as you say, develop it. So uh, it's not like they, they even were, were given the land. A lot of time it was bought. And on the basis of that buying, it was given uh, – It was that was how they created the mandate from the United Nations. And it was only later on that the borders even expanded because they kept trying to wipe them out. So for security purposes, they would you know, sit on the mountaintops. Uh, and even today, it's not so safe. I mean I've been up to the Golan Heights, which is the top end of Israel, right? And you look out on the Golan Heights on what used to be Syria, and there is a large flag of Jabhat al-Nusra, right? That's what people don't understand you know, is that the Israelis don't get a second chance. And uh, you know they can't afford to make a mistake in in a war, and it has happened. For example, in 1973, famously the Yom Kippur War, that all the the Arabs that were involved in that particular con- contest or fight invaded Israel on the most holy day of the Jewish calendar. That's the kind of the depths that this sort of thing tends to go to. So, mm. and and there's not a lot of space room for error, literally. Jabhat al Nusra. So that is, it's like, you know, with these terrorist organizations, ISIS is just the most famous franchise, right? It's the McDonald's of the terrorist world. You guys know this from last week. So Jabhat al-Nusra is like the stairs. I'll take a fit. Oh, right. <laughs> it's Al-Qaeda clearly is McDonald's. So uh, no, ISIS no, no, is Burger King. Well, you know, I don't know. Al-Qaeda is on the, on, on, you know, no one really hears about it anymore. It's almost but, like the chicken licking. But I the most know. important thing, it's all junk food and it's all horrible. <laughs> so all bad have, for you, don't right? Don't have any of it. 
Yes. Indeed. I can, all right. So if you, if you guys get sued for comparing uh, junk food to, to terrorist organizations, uh, uh, please bring it on. We'd love a court case <laughs> that would uh, give us great publicity. Or you can sponsor us. We'll make it go away very quick, very quietly. Oh, yeah. No, well, this podcast never existed. Okay. Um, all right. So obviously, as you say, Israel's uh, kind of uh, been under attack. A lot of the territories, uh, Jerusalem is an example, mm-hmm. um, is a territory that was uh, well, you, from one side freed mm-hmm. and from the other side um, occupied. Um, by the way, not by the Palestinians, by the Jordanians. So the Jordanians controlled most of what we call now the West Bank and all these sorts of things for 20 years. So all these people talking about a Palestinian state, what, where were you when the Jordanians were, were, were occupying? And they were occupying, right? They only started calling it the West Bank because what's the West Bank mean? It's the West Bank of the Jordan River as opposed to the East Bank, which is Jordan proper, right? So the Jordanians had control for 20 years. There was no talk of Palestinian states back then. But now when the Jews are controlled, suddenly, suddenly that's an issue, right? So I think that's very important and and. East Jerusalem was controlled by the Jordanians, yes, not the West. Do you think that um, the, the the creation of Israel was a great boon to anti-Semites because now they can say we're anti-Zionist, not anti-Jewish? So I'll tell, tell you what, what Zionism did. It didn't solve the issue of anti-Semitism, which it, it tried to do. Sure. But it made it a lot less deadly, right? Because it meant that if you were a state that was picking on your Jewish population, that there was an army or a, or a diplomatic corps or, or something out there that was going to come and get you, right? So like, for example, the Ugandans learned in the early 70s when those the Palestinians hijacked the plane, and oh, that was 40 years ago, they hijacked the plane and, and flew it to Uganda. The Israelis flew a, a squadron out in the dead of night, kind of shot all the terrorists and took the people home. So I think, yeah, sure, the, at a rhetoric level, there might be some issue about saying, oh, we're anti-Zionists, it doesn't matter. But I think, I think Israel has fundamentally made Jews safer around the world. And I'm not right. going to complain about that. No. Um, what do you say about the people who argue? Okay, it's made people uh, Jews fundamentally safer um, at the huge cost. And let's get to the elephant in the room uh, of the Gazan people or the Palestinians um, on the West Bank and in Gaza, uh, and that essentially, yes, Israel exists and it's great for the Jews, but uh, it's all through murder and oppression uh, of, of of Palestinians. Can you at least sorry? Can you at least try? <laughs> <laughs> Not be flippant about like steel man opposition. <laughs> okay, so how would I steel man that, Ramon? No, you just say so. There are arguments that that uh, Israel is actually deeply oppressive to non-Jews, uh, especially to the people of Gaza. Now. Hamas is not is not really friendly to Israel. They actually want to destroy it completely. So, so what is your view on that? Um, are, do the Palestinians have a point, or is it? Yeah, I'm not sure you're getting the steel man thing right. Maybe I must do the questions on this. But anyway, um, <laughs> ba- basically, look, the, the key thing here is, first of all, where, why do we have a 20% Arab population in Israel? That's, that's a, like a key question. How do, where, how, where do they pitch up from? Because you can't kill them all, don't I? No, it's not about killing or not killing. It's I'm about the fact people that, listening. <laughs> the, the fact that, that during the war, people left. It was a war, right? You had refugees and, and, and caused, as I said, by the fact that the Arabs didn't want this to happen. If they had said, guys, 1948, you know, it's actually okay that the Jews can, can live in peace. No problems, right? But they didn't. And so we have a refugee, uh, people who, who fled from that refugee situation, but a lot of people didn't. And those people didn't become Israeli Arabs and have full rights and are, you know, fine. So, so the key thing is what do you do about the other people who left, right? They, they can't come back because they're fairly hostile. And also they would make up a majority, they would like 
there's not that many Jews out there. There's, there's not a huge number. So, so the fact is, is that if all those Palestinians came back, then they would sort of it would demographically wipe out, particularly in a democracy, which is what Israel is, that, that Jewish majority, which it requires to keep its, its Jewish state. And the fact is, is that that's just where the sort of the two state solution idea comes from, because the, the, the Israelis keep saying to the Arab world, all right, guys, let's have peace. And they did it in 1967. Uh, and they did it in 1948, and they've done it in 2000, and they keep doing it. They did it in Gaza, where they removed all the Israelis. The, the, the Gazans had a choice. They could have created the Singapore of the Middle East. Instead, they turned it into the world's largest rocket launch pad. And until we can fundamentally deal with this rejectionism in the Arab world, and it's changing. It's not like it's not like an, an overall thing. It's not even in the whole Muslim world that you find this. But until the core protagonist can get over this idea that, that we need to kind of push people into the sea, there's not going to be any peace, and the Israelis are going to have to do what they need to do to defend themselves. But then again, I mean, especially under Netanyahu, they, they do like the, the, settle, the Jewish settlements in, in land that is technically not theirs. But I mean, that's up for discussion as well. So, I mean, there has been – Netanyahu is not, not trying to be as like – um, peaceful as possible. He's not, he's not a diplomat, way. let's yeah, be honest. He's not, he's not very diplomatic in this case. So look, the fact is, is that Netanyahu's in a difficult position. I think that the, the settlers, you know, in part of being democratic states, you've got to deal with constituencies and the settlers do cause uh, chaos. The, the settlements are only one issue that you have to, have to handle in, in, in this conflict, right? It tends to like, tends to come down to settlements. Like that's like the, the, the end game of, of, of mm. everything. But the fact is you didn't have settlements in that area for, Literally the 20 or 31st years of the state's life, right? Because you couldn't settle there because it was controlled by the Jordanians. And the Israelis have pulled out settlements like they did in Gaza and they did in Egypt. And, and it, what it, have it they make... got in return? Rockets. Yeah. So, so the key thing is that, is that the settlements are a part of the negotiation and with the right will, it can be dealt with. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff, borders, security, lack of incitement, uh, you know, all these sorts of things that you actually have to deal with as a package in order to get peace. And people can't just keep harping on the settlements as if that's the be-all and end-all of this conflict. So now just to be a bit more charitable uh, on my side, do you think there are grave issues with Israel itself about the, the political framework, uh, the people of Israel in terms of they, are they overtly antagonistic to Palestinians? Not because Palestinians are peaceful or whatever the case might be, but do you think Israel could do something a bit better to solve this problem? So the, the truth is, is no country is perfect, right? Israel has all of its issues. Um, you know, there's, there's problems when you put three Jews in a room and you're going to put six million in one country. You know, there might be problems. Sorry. Um, but the, you know. I'm the, not disagreeing. <laughs> Jonathan's that's, actually like. That's why we're getting along because there's only two Jews here and the French vegan is keeping peace. Right. So, so the fact is, is that yes, there are issues, but I would spin your argument on its head, right? Because what many people say is that, you know, the occupation is the issue, right? And that's, that's what's causing the hardship for the Palestinians. And I agree. Palestinians, it's not great to be a Palestinian. You have issues, particularly in the West Bank, because um, because there's no proper representative government for them because the, they've kind of been failed by their leaders. But what I tend to argue is that with, without that occupation, you know, Israel's under a serious threat. And it's also a democracy. And people like to poo-poo democracy, right, particularly liberal democracy. They say it's not tough enough. They say it's it doesn't. It doesn't uh, survive. But actually what Israel demonstrates is that even in the toughest neighborhood in the world, even with a very difficult, messy occupation with, with no one ready to partner for peace, is that you can still maintain a democratic state. And it should give hope to a lot of people who, who would like to see the Arab world more democratic that Israel could be the model for changing that if we could just kind of get people around the table to talk to one another and, and actually just sort out their issues. 
you use the word occupation, you're happy to use that word, and, and where do you apply it? Because the argument could be as far as the entire land of Israel is occupied. and I'm, I'm using it in the, in the, the narrow way. legal framework. So l- what happened was, just so you, your listeners can, can hear, in 1967, there is another invasion of Israel. Uh, there's been about five or six, six. just so everyone knows. Uh, this was, I think, the third. And... And, and Israelis took back, uh, took territory, which was actually traditionally, you know, the kind of places that you hear in the Bible that the Jews really were connected with. Hebron, like I mentioned, they, they sort of gained control over them in a defensive war, right? So the legal position on that in terms of, in terms of the international law position is that in a defensive war, you are not required to give back territory that you take from an invading army. The idea being is that it doesn't give invading uh, states an incentive to 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 exactly. keep invading, right? So so basically, the the Israelis took over uh, that area, and the legal definition of that from a military perspective is is a military occupation. And I, you know, people get all excited. Is it an occupation? I mean, for me, there's a, there's a legal issue. There's no there's no for me moral value judgment uh, attached to the term. There's obviously issues when you're you're ruling over people don't like you, right? And and when you say to them, hey guys, I tell you what, and they did do this. Why don't we have peace and we'll give back the land? And they say, no, we'd rather have you sticking around because that's what they said. Then, then you know, there's all those issues. But from a, a narrow legalistic perspective, I don't have a problem with the word. Okay, let's talk about – because I, I think I think you you said something which nailed the problem on, on its head for me, which is that the Palestinians have been let down by their leadership. I, I don't uh, think that uh, all Palestinians are bad. I, I, I do think that – um, given the opportunity to see what it might be like, I think most Palestinians would just like to live in peace. I, I think most Israelis just want to live in peace. I think most people just want to be left alone to kind of get on with their lives. So I would apply the same thinking to both groups here, um, bearing in mind what we said about groups on our last podcast. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, by the way, Jason is Jewish, I think. So it's kind of an interesting thing there. <laughs> is it? Yeah. Uh, okay. So, so in terms of that, tell us, uh, from your perspective, your understanding of sort of Hamas and, um, uh, you know, the, the different political movements in the area. Hamas being the most powerful, I think. Yeah. So I think th- th- there's a couple of issues around this particular thing. I think the first thing is that if you look at polling of Palestinians, where they ask Palestinians, what kind of country would you like? If you ever got a country, what kind of country would you like it to look like, you know, in your neighborhood? What is the country that they most likely are to say they want it to look like? Israel, right? That's what the polls say. That's, they would like a country that looks like Israel. So clearly, you know, there's, there's that notion of, of Palestinians that they also just want what everybody else in the world wants, which is rights and freedoms and ability to live their lives in peace. And I think that's a, a key question. What happens though is that I think the Palestinians have been hijacked by a few different issues. The one is Hamas, which is, you know, not so interested in Palestinian national rights as solving, you know, solving this issue so people, two peoples can live together as they are sort of Islamist fundamentalists who want to create some sort of large, wide scale caliphate uh, across the entire Middle East. So, and they're not the only ones, right? There's lots of people in that area, Hezbollah, ISIS, they're all kind of competing for, for that narrative. That, and that's the first thing. The second thing is what we find in, in Western societies. So Western society is not always so kind of PC to be an Islamist. Uh, and nationalism, as you say, Ramon, is like not so cool these days. So, so what do you have? You can groups like these sort of BDS groups to say, actually, no, the fundamental problem is not that we want to f- give the Palestinians the same as what the Israelis have. We actually want to wipe them out. And that goes to your question, Jonathan, around you know, this idea of occupation over the whole area. People who talk like that are not interested in allowing the Jews to have what they're demanding for the Palestinians. 
And that's really, when you hear the debates, particularly in South Africa, you'll find that's the narrative. How do we go about crushing, uh, crushing this country so that the Palestinians can have it all? And that's not, it's just not nice, you know? It's not kind of fair play or, or right. anything like that. I mean, it's, 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 uh, oh, ethnic cleansing under any other name, right? Yeah, absolutely. You, you know, everyone is, is, is so quick to say, well, if we amalgamate, everything will be fine. You know, that's like this, this extreme thing. But you look at Europe, which is like, you know, the epicenter of all these sorts of things, and, and the European Union is falling apart. So if it's not going to work there, how dare you tell me that it's going to work uh, in, in, in the Middle East, where you've just wiped out literally 50 kilometers from Israel's border the entire indigenous population of Yazidis that lived in Syria. Yes. And you tell me that, that people who perceive Jews to be outsiders, to be white people, to be, you know, not really belonging there are going to be safe, I don't think is a really a realistic mm. view of how the world operates. Just, uh, sorry if you want to make a uh, no, no, not salient all. point, but, uh, it wasn't very salient. <laughs> Um, just in, uh, in terms of, if you want a little bit of insight into Hamas and, and how they think, there's a good book called, which was quite popular a while back, called Son of Hamas, <laughs> uh, written by a guy by the name of, uh, Musab Yunus, I think. Just read their charter if you want to know what Hamas does. Sure. Yeah. Um, but he gives, uh, I think some people like stories around things <laughs> rather than, uh, you know, we know we present data and facts to people. They kind of prefer it when it's a lived experience. So this is a lived experience by a guy who was in Hamas, uh, and, and, uh, and, and tells his story. Right. So let's talk about South Africa. Indeed. So the Jews have played a major part in this country. The ANC has hijacked the myth completely that they like the only ones who did something. But I mean, the Freedom Charter was essentially written by Jewish communists back mm-hmm. in the day. And a lot of Jews arrived here from, from Eastern Europe. Uh, in the 30s, in the 1920s. Um, from, the, from the 1800s. And yes, even before then, right? And even here, even under apartheid, the Afrikaners were a bit like, are not the Jews like really white or not really? You know? Like, you haven't, it hasn't been an easy ride here either. What is, in your opinion, mm-hmm. of course, uh, how do you feel the Jewish population is doing in, in South Africa at present? So or how what, the, sorry, or, or what is the sentiment about Jews in this country? So tell you the most astonishing fact about South African, South African Jews is that if you take anti-Semitism levels, so there's people who track this sort of stuff. You take anti-Semitism levels around the world, obviously the least anti-Semitism world is in Israel. But after that, the country with the least anti-Semitism is South Africa. And I think the, I think it really talks to the majority of people in this country about how they actually feel about racial issues, about minority issues, about anti-Semitism. And I really think that South Africans as a whole are not an anti-Semitic bunch, and that's really cool. So, you know, we're happy for that, and we love the Constitution and all these sorts of good things. At the same time, I think where you do find anti-Semitism is sometimes in the elite of of the of the society. Sometimes you, you find it in political parties or in the media or in academia. And I think that's where some of the, the challenge comes from. And it often cloaks itself in this Israel issue. Yeah. So, so people will say, well, you know, I'm not an anti-Zionist. I, I, I hate Jews, but I just hate Israel as if that's, you know, like as if you can hate half the population of, of, of the Jews in the world and feel, you know, that that's okay. Uh, there's not a lot of Jews in the world, just by the way. There's like 14 million about. Yeah, uh, just uh, let's do a quick thought experiment. So if you're listening at home, uh, think to yourself, how many Jews you think are in South Africa? Yes. Right, got that number in your head? Okay, Benji, how many Jews in South Africa, roughly? So, so you, depending on what census data you read, you're talking about 60 to 70,000. Okay, the whole country. The whole country. I know most of them. <laughs> sure you do. Now, a lot of them are at the station, actually. But anyway. It's good to keep tabs on your Jews, Ramon. 
Absolutely. You never know. The thing about Jews, they, 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 <laughs> oh, the they, about they're Jews. very good at business. Is that anti-Semitic? I don't know. Probably. But it's okay. On this, on this station, uh, this podcast, all sorts of things fly, which I never think would fly anywhere else. So it's fine. Look, the fact is, is that the, the, the Jews have been able, because of what South Africa has been in a variety of ways to really contribute in things like business, but also in politics. I mean, Helen Sussman was the only only Jewish woman in parliament uh, when she used to do anything. I mean, she was pretty much – that's also because she was the only sort jo- of yeah. person. Joe jo Slover and Ruth First. <laughs> yes. So all the old communists, yeah? I mean, you talk about the, the freedom trials. All the white Ravonia trialists – All nine of them. Were Jews. Exactly. Right? So, no, no, But sorry, but like, like there's this myth that like the ANC was only black. And that they fought for liberation by themselves. No, I mean, the Jews were like the founding members of the Freedom Charter and they wrote it down and they did like, I think, uh, Lily, Lily's, Lily's farm, farm was owned by, uh, I can't remember his name now. Yes. Yeah, so, Jewish chap, right? Yeah, exactly. So it was, uh, it was, uh, I think it was Harold Wolpe, if I'm not mistaken. Sounds uh, familiar. Who, who owned, who owned the, the thing. And I think in, in that respect, Jews are, uh, are important, uh, Progenitor to non-racialism in South Africa because they were the ones writing into the, the Freedom Charter that South Africa should belong to everyone who lives in it black and white. Right. And that was why the sort of PAC broke off and, and, and did that. And so I think that that is an, is an important thing. By the way, it, it just for historical clarity, the ANC was all black. But they had alliance partners. So a lot of them were sort of Congress of Democrats, okay. SACP. So the ANC only opened up its ranks to non-racial much yeah. later on. The only problem with those type of Jews is that they were communists. So, yes, because we can't all be perfect no, uh, all the nice. time. Some of them were also Zionists, by the way. But a lot of the, you know. a lot of the first Zionists were, were actually socialists Yes, as so, well. Not so many people know that. Remember, Zionism was a, was a nationalism, right, which means Indeed. you get like all sorts of people piling in, whether it's the liberals or the socialists or whatever. So it was a, a, a bit of a mix. And, and originally, the first people in Israel were, 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 were socialists. It was kind of a big socialist experiment. But today, it's a pretty sort of… Liberal capitalist no, place. That's a fairly capitalistic mm-hmm. uh, liberal place. But now, just to as a, as a final point from me, how does it feel as a person who who has a history of persecution, not you personally, but the, your, your maybe your ancestors certainly, to see your national government invite a terrorist organization like Hamas in the country very publicly? Well, I, mean, I think it's one of the interesting ideas around what we've just seen with the. Uh, with Anderson, right? This pastor who they've barred, right. which you know, there's, there's, I think you know, good arguments. Right? The guy's a Holocaust denier, and he bashes gay people. There's all sorts of interesting things. But that same, not at a government level, but uh, at a party level, they invited a terrorist organization, a legitimate, you know, civilian targeting, rocket launching terrorist organization, to come waltz around our country. And I think that that should be worrying. For all South Africans, because sometimes the South African government has this view that there isn't a dictatorship they don't like. Uh, but that's true. Uh, but it, actually, inviting those sorts of people into the country and making a fanfare of it right. is, is not going to produce peace. Which is really what we, what the South African government should be doing, is saying to Hamas, "Hey guys, put down the weapons, put the the nasty ideology on a back foot, and start having a discussion." And, and to, to their credit, sometimes they do do that. Right. But it doesn't help mm-hmm. when. When they're rolling out the red carpet for, for, for a group that like Turkey throws out and Qatar throws out. No, you know, it's, you don't I mean, have to be more Palestinian than the Palestinians. I mean, for, for me, it's akin to the DA bringing in literally the neo-Nazi party from America to Cape Town and, and having like a conference with them. And, and historically, it's, it doesn't even fit into South Africa's, you know, perspective because they're actually like 
in, in the struggle with Fatah, you know, with, right. the, with the guys in the West Bank. And those were really their friends. And actually, the South Africans are very important in, in helping the Palestinians find their voice and, and do all these sorts of things. South Africa could play an amazing role in, in the peace process in, in, in the Middle East. But at the moment, it's not being seen as a good actor because whenever it has the chance, it bashes Israel and just sort of pushes out mm. the Palestinians. And so it's not seen as fair and unbiased. Right. We very quickly spoke about apartheid mm-hmm. in the beginning. Uh, we have uh, on campuses across the country something called Israeli Apartheid Week every year. Uh, it's an activist week, essentially. Um, it has kind of spread uh, worldwide. I don't know where it really started, but it Toronto. seems like it took a – oh, really? Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like it took a good foothold in South Africa, um, the concept of Israel as an apartheid state. Right. Um, tell us the problems with that theory. In like two words or less. Look, the fact is is that there's a lot of issues in the Middle East. Right? You have ethnic issues, tribal issues, religion issues, interreligion issues. The one issue that they don't have in the Middle East is a racial issue. Right? You get Jews of all races. You get Ethiopian Jews, Chinese Jews, Indian Jews. You get Arabs of all different kinds of ethnicities. There's no there's no basis for that comparison, especially since Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. And the last time I checked, apartheid was not a democracy. Right? I really think where, where what the reason that people punt that analogy is is that they've they've tired of trying to crush Israel militarily. So how can you do it? Well, let's think of a country where you did manage to to crush a country without a military. Oh, I know, we can boycott it to death. So basically, there's this global campaign to label Israel first of all and once you've labeled it then you can boycott it and once you can boycott it maybe you can crush it and it's, so it's part of a international pressure thing to try and wipe out Israel the same way as was done militarily and not is it bad for Israel it's bad for Africa right mm. we are a, a kind of a, the place where we need the sorts of technologies that you have in Israel that that really can make a huge difference whether it's water Healthcare, technology, and, and a huge amount of South Africa already runs on a sort of Israeli technology, right? Big, big parastatals that no one will tell you about run on Israeli technology. And the Israelis already are our largest export um, market in, in South Africa to the Middle East. Why are we putting South African jobs at risk for somebody else's political agenda? It, it just seems silly to me. Yep, but I mean, if uh, if uh, politicians were reasonable, uh, <laughs> anyway, you know my Ramon view. Ramon might even vote for them. Well, I don't. I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't go that <laughs> no, far. No, I refuse. Okay. Sorry. All right. Well, we've reached our time limit because we're going to try keep it into one hour packets for you guys. Yes, because people moan. Because you're busy or something. Because you have like kids. Does it interfere with their like soapy watching? I don't you care know? about your stupid kids. Listen to the podcast anyway. Thank yeah. you for listening, Benji. Appreciate it. Yeah, guys, Thank if you. you want to harass me on Twitter, Benji underscore Shulman. And, All right. you, and you can see our Facebook page, South African Friends of Israel, on Facebook. 10,000, 100,000 likes pretty soon. And uh, just a tip to go look at the photograph for this week because uh, we're sure that that will cause untold, untold triggering um, <laughs> across the, uh, certain parts of the community. Um, thank you for joining us on the Renegade Report. Ramon, final thoughts? Uh, none whatsoever. I really enjoyed it. Uh, so, Palestinians try to be like Israel. <laughs> right. Inshallah. Good. Thanks, guys. And, uh, Inshallah, good Shabbos. Yeah, I'm the racist. Um, right, so you can catch the Renegade Report uh, on Facebook, Renegade Report. Uh, also on Twitter, Renegade underscore report. You can send us your hate mail. We're hoping for lots of it after this show. Come on. We must have pissed you off somehow. So, uh, that's Renegade Report mailbox at gmail.com. Uh, Maybe for this one, we shouldn't really tell you where to find Ramon and I. We will catch you next time. Cheers. Bye.
CliffCentral.com.